Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 262, Northumberland. First off, sorry I have a bit of a cold, a friend called Patrick gave it to me. Thank you. He also reminded me that the port in Cornwall, which I pronounced Foy in the Britain and the Sea episodes for members, is properly pronounced Foy. So sorry. Have I mentioned that I have a member service which is as cheap as chips and for which you can sign up at thehistoryofengland.co.uk forward slash become a member? Anyway, if I haven't, there is. This week, though, I'm going to start by making an absurd connection. When I was but an tiny little boy, or however it goes, I remember learning about Kerensky, you know, the Russian guy. As a fully paid-up, card-carrying member of the middle classes, I've always felt a certain sympathy with poor old Alexander Kerensky, chucked out after six months. Now, before you all shout at me and tell me what a thoroughly horrid person Kerensky was or whatever, just bear in mind that it is what, let me think, uh, 54 minus 17 equals 37. So 37 years since I read a word about Alexander Kerensky. So, you know, don't be nasty to me. My takeaway, though, was about Kerensky was that he was a sort of representative of the middle classes attempting to sort out the mess the aristocratic czars had created, coupled with a desperate attempt to keep all the various balls in the air and make sure nothing got dropped. World War I, bit of democracy, economic reform, the full shebang. And in his attempt to satisfy everyone, he achieved absolutely zipperoony. If you do have any quibbles about my interpretation of this period of history, please send them to David Crowther at The Bin. The laboured link leading from my loquacity is to Somerset and Dudley. So Kerensky did all this stuff to try and hold it all together and keep everyone happy, and then along came Lenin who said sod that and signed up to the Brest-Litovsk Treaty, which has got to be one of the most abject surrenders of territory in world history, does it not? And of course, it would mean lots of trouble, but Lenin was able to solve one of his problems, and that meant he could get on with the business of building Bolshevik Russia. I really am beginning to wish I'd never started this analogy. But look, Somerset accepted the world as it was, like Kerensky. He had a war in Scotland he had to win. He had Boulogne in France he needed to hold on to. He had a reformation to deliver. So while he was trying to do all of that, inflation 
could have gone as high as 21%. Population growth was sending Tudor society into a tailspin. The harvests of 1549 to 1551 were poor, were rubbish. We've just had the camping time. There's rumours of thousands of revolting peasants in Kent. Ordinary folk were in serious danger of starving. The point I'm trying to make is that, of course, Somerset crashed and burned. Because he wouldn't change the rules. He wouldn't focus on what was really important. Whereas Dudley, Duke of Northumberland as he will be, was capable of taking the Captain James T. Kirk approach with Kubaya Shimara. He could cheat. He could change the rules. Like Lenin, Dudley could throw away all the apparent success, apparent military success in Scotland, which was actually bleeding everybody of money, apparent military glory in France, which was also bleeding everybody of money, recognise that it was transitory and peripheral, and get on with the main job of doing his best to bring peace, prosperity and stability to the country. Accepting that in writing terms I have just disappeared into a metaphorical vortex of metaphors, let me also note that Dudley was not alone in his analysis of the challenges that faced Edwardian England. A bright young thing called William Cecil prepared a paper in 1550 for the council. Now you might be surprised at that, huh, you'll say. Last time we heard of William Cecil, he was Zumerzet's man. I'd have thought he went down with him, isn't that the way it works? Well, you'd be right, normally. Catherine Brandon, Duchess of Suffolk, wrote him a letter, which I thought I'd quote for no good reason. Good Cecil, mistrust not, but you shall have all that I can do ye, and if there be anything which you think I may do, forbear me not. Use me as I have been bold to use you. Cecil was on the political ropes, so it's quite impressive that at such a time Catherine should publicly show her support for him. Catherine Brandon was also to hold off agreeing a marriage with one of her sons because she didn't want to push them into a marriage with which they were personally uncomfortable. A reminder, I think, that in the welter of big dramatic stuff we talk about, we forget that people had as much common sense in Tudor times as they ever did. Thought I'd share that with you, since, you know, we tend to focus on the negatives here at the History of England. Not that Catherine's sport did Cecil a blind bit of good, of course. Eight days later, he was thrown into the tower. Cecil was in custody for eight weeks. When he emerged, he found his address had changed to political wilderness, which for Cecil was never going to be a desres. His roots, back to the political good books, were twofold. The first was offered by Stephen Gardner. Because by 1550, Dudley was getting worried by Somerset again. Somerset had regained his place on the council. He and Dudders appeared to be getting on fine, even discussing possible marriage alliances. And in fact, in June, Dudley's son John duly married Anne Seymour. But Dudley began to be worried that Somerset appeared to be reforging alliances with folks like Gardiner. And folks like Gardiner, as far as Dudley were concerned, were food, not friends. In the latter part of 1550, Cecil prepared advice for Dudley to prepare a case against Gardiner. In December 1550, the Bishop of Winchester came in front of a court led by Cranmer. In February 1551, Gardiner was stripped of the Bishopric of Winchester and he was led away to jail. Not quite the end of the story for Wiley Winchester, but we won't hear any more of him for a while. Gardiner, incidentally, followed Edmund Bonner, who had also been stripped of the Bishopric of London for being a too traditionalist, and the two were replaced. Gardiner was replaced by John Ponnet. John Ponnet is the guy we mentioned, I think, somewhere who wrote of the right of the people to remove errant kings. So he's a radical chap for the age. A reminder of the radicalism that Protestantism was capable of bringing. Anyway, John Ponnet was made Bishop of Winchester. 
and then a man called Nicholas Ridley replaced Edmund Bonner as Bishop of London. Ridley was a close associate of Cranmer, and I appreciate that I am here introducing a welter of names, a veritable welter, but Nicholas Ridley will have his place in English iconography, so I thought he should get a mensch. Unsurprisingly, what Cranmer was doing here was replacing conservative clerics with bishops who were evangelicals as quickly as he could manage it. So while I'm on the topic of Cecil's return to gainful employment, I might mention that during one of the spats between the council and Mary, when a written record of the exchange was sent to her from the council, Mary remarked, Ah, good master Cecil took much pain here. The reason I quote this is that Cecil's name was being recognised. People in power knew who he was. They recognised him as significant as a person to be watched. Cecil was back on the trail. He's ducking and weaving. And in the winter of 1550, he prepared this paper for the council that I was meant to be telling you about ages ago before I got distracted again. So his aim in the paper was to outline the environment that should drive the council's strategy and decision-making in his view. So here we go with a snippet from it. The emperor is aiming at the sovereignty of Europe, which he cannot obtain without the suppression of the reformed religion. And unless he crushes the English nation, he cannot crush the Reformation. Besides religion, he has a further quarrel with England, and the Catholic party will leave no stone unturned to bring about our overthrow. And we are not agreed amongst ourselves. The majority of our people will be with our adversaries. So this is very interesting. Oh, where shall I start? William Cecil will be driven through his life by the imperative of protecting the Reformation from her enemies. In here, you can see the first stirrings of a division that will be central to English politics, fear of the forces of Catholicism. And hey, who can blame them? A princess of the crown conspires daily with said Catholic emperor. Just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they aren't out to get you. And Cecil admits that the Reformation has a long way to go. The people are not yet converted by any means. They hanker. They hanker. Capital H. Okay, so back to the Brest-Litovsk Treaty. Very difficult to say. I know you've been waiting for it. Cecil's paper made it clear that political and religious unity at home, focusing on the threat from the Catholic Empire, that was England's priority. Everything else was not. Everything else could go. Dudley agreed with these conclusions, and what Dudley agreed with, Dudley would deliver. France was first. In March 1550, Dudley agreed to give Boulogne back to France, whence, obviously, it had come. The benefits were simple and immediate. The cost of maintaining a garrison that was besieged and needed to be supplied was removed. Plus, the French agreed to pay about £180,000 for it, for their own town. Fancy. Imagine what we could have got for Loughborough. The idea of peace with Scotland was also included in the treaty, since Scotland and France were, of course, alive, so that was discussed. And the French armies were, anyway, in the Scottish sleeves. Dudley was completely convinced of the uselessness of the Scottish war that we now remember as the rough wooing. The Scots had already neatly sidestepped their repudiated treaty with Henry VIII, and the child in question, Mary, as in Queen of Scots, yep, that Mary, had been married already to the French Dauphin, so she was no longer available to Edward anyway. The garrisons in Scotland were expensive and they were beleaguered. Despite the huge victory of Pinky Clough, England had no hope of winning a renewed war and it was costing a fortune. Time to leave. Fighting duly stopped, 
although it took a while to conclude a treaty, which finally happened in March 1551. Now, of course, Dudley was heavily criticised. People were outraged. They don't like defeat and what looks like giving stuff away. It's a national pride thing. And Boulogne was the revered big man's great triumph. It did little or nothing, therefore, for Dudley's political reputation, although it was the right thing to do. A perennial problem with politics, I am sure you will agree. Which, of course, meant that among all the discontent, it tended to be Dudley that got the blame for a few other things as well at the same time. So, when a bishop's wife wrote, We are much disturbed by apprehension of riots, by reason of the dearness of provisions. On whom blame is laid, you know better than I. She meant Dudley, by the way, just in case that's not clear. It also reflected Ambassador Shriver's analysis to the Emperor that Dudley was hated by the commons and more feared than loved by the rest. Nonetheless, Dudley kept a political lid on things and partly achieved this by organising the structure of Lord Lieutenants. Now, this was another one of Henry VIII's ideas, actually. The Lord Lieutenants were a sort of military arm that supported the sheriff in each county. Dudley saw the value in the scheme and he had it extended and regularised and approved in Parliament. The system of Lord Lieutenants is one that still exists as one of those irrelevant and vestigial survivals to make sure the old buffeties of the now defunct officer classes have got a job, of which England has so many. But at the time, it made sense, and it would be further extended in Elizabeth's reign to become a core part of English regional government. Dudley also took action to address the basic problem of the economy. Obviously, one step was to spend less, and through a peace policy, he was now doing that. But we also have a curious little incident of the coinage, wherein I shall introduce the name of Thomas Gresham, a name known and beloved to all of you economists out there, I have no doubt, and the only thing I remember from my year doing the economics optional year at St Andrews. Anyway, we have stated the problem before. Henry VIII had devalued the coinage following the device used regularly by the French crown of reducing the silver content of coins while keeping the face value the same. Naughty and indeed naughty. Once started, it was a bit like watching Game of Thrones. Although it's meaningless and it goes nowhere, almost impossible to stop doing it. So, Henry VIII had really pushed the boat out. The silver content of the coins had gone from 12 ounces to 4 ounces, so that the most recent coin was called the copper face, because the silver was so thin it actually rubbed off the coin. The gag at the time was that the coins blushed with shame, which is not a bad gag, actually. So, here was one of the manageable causes of the galloping inflation which could be understood and dealt with. So, Dudley decided that the value of the coinage would be restored. However, he could not resist one more bite of the cherry. So, a new coinage was introduced first, which had just three ounces, and that raised him £120,000. But then, he took an odd, gradualist route back to proper recoinage and re-establishing a proper bullion value. So, what normally happened in these sort of things is that everyone came in with their old coin, and they were given a new one to replace it. It's a pricey and administratively challenging process, of course. So Dudley thought, so Dudley tried the wheeze of just reducing the face value of the new coins he was issuing. Well, that's a way of doing things, but he announced it early that it would happen before the new coins were out there, so the price of the coinage dropped immediately. It was all a bit chaotic. Plus, we then have the impact of that thing that oddly gets called Gresham's Law. Gresham's Law, which is bad money drives out good. People were reluctant to use and therefore lose the older coinage 
whose bullion content was higher than the new coin that was coming out. So what they did is they hoarded the old coins against rainy days or for the bullion value. And the only money left in circulation was therefore the newer, lesser coins. Bad money drives out good. Ta-da! So where does Gresham come into all of this? Well, apparently he never said anything to create this law, and Copernicus, amongst others, had previously identified the phenomenon anyway. We don't hear enough about Copernicus, do we? But mainly, there were two reasons why Gresham gets associated with the law. Firstly, Dudley asked for advice from many financial folks, and probably Gresham was amongst those. Stop messing about, they said, I paraphrase, obviously. So Dudley did what he should have done, and he just issued a new, better coinage with pre-1542 silver content. In the process, though, he had again won himself no favours with the ordinary folk, because, as always in these situations, it's always those who are already rich who make more money out of the situation, since they have the means and they're in the know. It's the poor who always get shafted. But secondly, and more usefully, Gresham became the royal agent on the Low Countries money markets for two years. Now, Thomas was something of a financial whiz kid, and during his two years there, he managed to reduce the national debt on the Antwerp money market from £325,000 to just £108,000, largely just by messing about with the exchange rate. So that's nice then. Handy, even. Well done, Tom. Somerset, meanwhile, had been watching all of this from the council table. Sadly, Somerset was finding the business of playing second fiddle pretty much unbearable. He had to watch also as Dudley made himself more and more essential to and popular with the king, both by the freedoms that Dudley gave the king and his much more inclusive rather than domineering style that Somerset had had, and as we'll see, by a continuous emphasis that Dudley gave to religious reform, which matched Edward's own growing convictions. In October, John Dudley was duly promoted, and he became the Duke of Northumberland. At last, he became the Duke of Northumberland. So, that's Viscount Lyle, Earl of Warwick, now Northumberland. It's Northumberland that we will now call Dudders, since generally that is how he is remembered, and I do not want to cause confusion down your local as you share this week's episodes with your pals. In this round of promotions, it was Northumberland's friends that got the honours, not Somerset's friends, which meant Somerset was a man more miffing than miffed against. Incidentally, in 1551, William Cecil was also promoted to the King's Council, so William Cecil had officially arrived. One of Northumberland's political allies who received his promotion was Henry Grey, as it happens, Marcus of Dorset, who was now also promoted to be Duke of Suffolk. He was promoted by right of his wife, Francis Brandon, who was daughter of Charles Brandon, who had now died, of course. Francis Brandon was also stepdaughter of Catherine Brandon, who we mentioned before. How confusing is that? Why did I mention it? Anyway, as we've said, Henry Grey's position on the council now meant that Jane Grey was seen much more at court. It's worth remembering just how important she was, given her royal blood, and that she was in line to inherit the throne. Fourth in line, I think, at this stage. There was public evidence of her importance. One particular occasion was the visit of the French Queen Mary of Guise. She had been in France to visit her daughter Mary, Mary of Queen of Scots, that is, and she returned via London, and she was given a rousing and lavish reception, with all the members of the court decked out in their finery. At the official reception, Jane's mother Frances led the elite of England's women folk to meet the Scottish regent, with Jane ranking as fifth. It has to be said, though, that despite his promotion, Jane's dad doesn't appear to have been the best 
or even the most enthusiastic administrator. There's a suspicion of getting him out of the way when he was dispatched almost immediately to the borders for a very unhappy period. In fact, he wrote to our friend Cecil from the borders as it happens. I long to hear from you, as though that an inhabit hell would gladly hear how they do that be in heaven. So, not having a great time then. Just guessing. Meanwhile, Somerset just couldn't help himself, essentially. We've seen him cozying up to the Catholic faction with Gardiner, despite his evangelical convictions. And in the late summer, he also started conversations with the Earl of Arundel and other traditionalists. The story that emerged to Dudley was that Somerset had organised some of his supporters to keep reserves of men for him, up to 2,000 men in one account, just in case he should read them for something, I don't know, something uh, rebellious maybe, or gardening related. And apparently Somerset had a hundred of his own men ready and willing for action as well. Another story emerged that Somerset was using his popularity to have bands in London march around crying, Liberty! in protest against Northumberland's policies, Somerset was basically trying to be subtle in stirring up the political pot. There's a rather interesting exchange, actually, between Somerset and Dudley during one of the interminable arguments about whether Mary should or should not be allowed to celebrate the Mass. Somerset urged toleration and leeway, which you could characterise as being typical of the kind of toleration he'd brought to the country in 1547. You might also, alternatively, be a little cynical and say this was just part of his campaign to create a pro-Somerset party amongst the Catholics, but I leave that to you to decide. Northumberland, on the other hand, was of a much more straightforward and uncompromising mind. The Mass is either of God or of the devil. If it is of God, it is but right all our people should be allowed to go to it. But if it is not out of God, as we are taught in the Scriptures... Why then should not the voice of this fury be prescribed to all? Both Somerset and others have a point, really. Life is complicated. Whether or not Somerset would have gone further than a whispering, stirring the pot campaign, whether he'd have actually used those supposed armed men or not, is moot, but it became irrelevant. Northumberland was a man of action, and he wasn't hanging about until Somerset made his mind up. Somerset seems to have caught a whiff of Northumberland's change of heart. He asked his old pal Cecil if he'd heard anything. Cecil's reply was a bit uncompromising. You'll be fine if you're innocent, sort of thing. So on a morning in October, Northumberland's agents acted, and Somerset and his fellow conspirators, if that's the right word, were taken. It took some time to bring the good duke to trial, but at the start of December, finally, Somerset was brought from the tower to Westminster by boat. He was resolute, declaring he would confess nothing. Crowds gathered. Somerset's popularity, it seems, had been fully restored. The building of Somerset House forgotten, the good Duke's evangelism and interest in the people remembered. The charges against him included treason and unlawful assembly. Now, the English have always enjoyed a good courtroom drama, and the crowd grew as the trial continued back and forth, with Somerset defiant, challenging everything. Edward actually seemed to have been unimpressed with the charges, writing that he had answered them. The lords, however, were not so sure that he had. So the discussion went back and forth, and outside the crowd began to chant, God save the Duke! God save the Duke! The guardsmen stood outside the courtroom nervously, the heads of their axes pointing downwards, probably hoping there would be an acquittal so their axe kids could stay as they were and they could get home to their tea without being lynched. And indeed, 
On the charges of treason, the verdict came out. The good duke was acquitted by the court. Wah! The crowd went wild. The guardsmen kept their axes as they were and thought about tea time. They thought it was all over. Sadly, it was not. Sentencing continued. For the second charge, Somerset was convicted for gathering unlawful assemblies. The penalty was, oh, death. Was Somerset guilty or innocent? Northumberland actually seems to have felt guilty about his death later and said he had procured his death unjustly. But there does seem to have been some hard evidence and Somerset just could not resist the type of politicking that he would have known was dangerous. And of the unlawful assembly, he probably was guilty. It's a bit of a technicality, but he probably was guilty in the laws of the law. Either way, on January the 22nd, Somerset stood on the gallows pole and said, Hangman, hangman, wait a little while, and then spoke to the crowd of God and his time to die, and was then beheaded. The crowd groaned, many rushed forward to dip bits of cloth in his blood. The good duke was no more. Ambassador Shriver was smug, remarking that it was all probably as well, and probably well deserved, given that Somerset had introduced the new religion into England. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Two separate observers noted that Nicholas Ridley, the Bishop of London, and Thomas Cranmer argued furiously with Northumberland to save Somerset's life. For them, Somerset had been the friend who had finally allowed religion to be rebuilt in the kingdom. Maybe they overstepped the mark. Despite the further reforms that follow, there seems to have now been a widening breach between Northumberland and Cranmer from this point forward. There was to be a specific cost to this breach, which would leave Cranmer's work undone, which I'll come to later. But meanwhile, though, progress had been made, reformation-wise. As I've mentioned before, Cranmer, and indeed his soulmates, such as Nicholas Ridley, new Bishop of London, believed firmly in revolution by small steps, each step to allow the people to adjust and to then come with them with reform, by small steps to prevent and confuse opposition, giving no obvious big events around which their opponents could seize a banner, plant it in the ground, adopt a power stance bravely, and boldly declare, here I stand, I can do no other. Possibly even the more historically aware of them might have killed their horse just to finish off the tableau. Cranmer was convinced that each change must be done in the same rigorous and complete way, with full parliamentary authority and, crucially, with royal authority. Hopefully I have by now made Cranmer's belief in the primacy and authority of the king in religious matters absolutely clear. Each little step would take them further towards the model laid down in John Calvin's Reformed Church in Geneva. A good example of this was the 1549 Prayer Book. Although the Princess Mary would have had no truck with it whatsoever, the subtle Stephen Gardner had realised that actually you could squeeze the Catholic faith between its pages. One contemporary lady's will, for example, innocently defined all the banned traditional trappings of the Catholic Mass for the Dead and then asked for all to be done in accordance with the 1549 prayer book. Had he read that will with its incompatible requests, 
Cranmer would have hung his head into his hands. Small sobs would have racked his body. Tears would have dropped from between his fingers. If he'd been born a little later in time, he'd have been forced to make himself a nice cup of tea and a dry biscuit to get over it. But the point is, though, that more needed to be done. The reformatory job needed to be finished. Do not mistake me. Much had been done, and a lot had changed by this time. England's places of worship were now transformed by the iconoclasm of the Edwardian church. Much of this was in the desire to cleanse the temple, to destroy images, but it was also the desire to build a new, fresh, clean, honest church. Destroying images and objects was part of that celebration of the liberty which was so central a theme in the English Reformation. Liberty from all the old impositions and in the minds of Luther and the evangelicals, freedom from the old confidence tricks. The freedom for every individual to understand and see God through their own exploration of the scriptures. We tend to represent the iconoclasm of the 1530s, 40s and 50s as a negative thing, purely a negative thing, a destruction of art and beautiful things, which is understandable. But allow the people of the time also their joy and sense of release, the positive assertion that all things from the past had lost their imprisoning power over the English people. The work Cranmer led had been thorough. To give you one example, in medieval churches, the chancel was clearly and firmly separated from the congregation by a rude screen, and each screen would have had groups of holy figures on top of it. Not a single figure now survives. The parish church was now a plain room, with no decoration to be seen except memorial text, a wooden board with the royal arms, and specific Bible texts and the Ten Commandments on the wall. The pulpit was much more the centre of the church. The altar had been replaced with a table and a bench for communicants. Often the altar or communion table had been brought down into the body of the church, and the congregation sat around the minster and the table, coming forward to kneel for communion. Of course, this has all been swept away now by the horrors of the Victorian Tractarian movement and their love of grandeur, pomp, circumstances and ritual, so it's a bit difficult to visualise. But there is one lovely image from Hale's Church, which was in Diarmuid McCulloch's book, The Tudor Church Militant, which I have put on the website. The picture, not the book. There's also a book which my mate Diarmuid recommended to me after last week's interview, called The Church's Victorians Missed by Chatfield, which is wonderful, showing how churches would have looked before the Tractarians had a go. The picture of Hale's Church I mentioned shows a table, pews organised around it, simple chancel screen, whitewashed walls. It gives a remarkably good feeling of how it would have been. Now, if you're a lover of colour and images in your church, then it would appear, as William Harrison wrote slightly later, that dead cold is our age, there is blue ice in our churches. If you like simplicity and intimacy, then you can imagine the sense of liberation, excitement and newness. Life would appear to be all about trade-offs. But certainly, in these bare churches, their laity participated more openly and fully in the service, Bible reading was given primacy and the creeds were fully emphasised. As to how far most people had adopted the new ways, well, it's difficult to be precise. But if I tell you that when the altar at St Paul's in London was moved to the centre of the church, it had to be done in secret at night, and that probably tells you something. The reports we get from imperial ambassadors often gloomily painted a picture of the constant and dramatic preaching so much a feature of the Reformation, and how it had caused a population that was now deeply converted to the new ways. But actually, that's a, probably a false impression caused by the fact the ambassadors don't move much out of the southeast, and outside London, 
the situation would have been very different. Most commentators these days end up somewhere not far away from William Cecil had got to, that more than half of the people remained reluctant about the changes, unconvinced or even, frankly, rebellious. The one thing that had been emphatically achieved, though, was that the Pope was gone. History, hashtag dead to me. That little battle had been almost entirely won, and it's probably unsurprising, given anti-papal messages had been promoted now for almost 20 years, and people were anyway inclined to reverence the king rather than Pope. Even Gardner had accepted this point. Now, this popular rejection of the Pope gave Conservatives a bit of a problem, because it's quite tricky to mount a coherent defence of Catholicism and exclude the Pope from your arguments. More had yet to be done then, and in 1552-1553, Cranmer was able to enlist the support of Parliament and the growing enthusiasm of the King to implement two critical changes. The first was a major revision of his prayer book in a new act of uniformity in 1552. Not even a man as intelligent and flexible as Gardiner could square this prayer book with the Catholic faith. The Virgin Mary and the saints were not to be invoked. The Mass was gone, replaced by the Lord's Supper, vestments were simplified, any prayer or act not specifically mentioned in the Scriptures were gone. It is this liturgy that has remained mainly unchanged to this day. The following year then, 1553, brought Cranmer's consolidation of the process of reform in 42 articles, a structured and coherent statement of faith. They would be the model for the final Elizabethan 39 articles, and therefore again, they still form the basis of the Anglican faith today. Justification by faith alone and predestination were confirmed. Transubstantiation was condemned as repugnant to the plain words of the scripture, and the rites of the mass were described as fables and dangerous deceits. Nobody was pulling their punches. There was a big, hefty wind-up with full follow-through. The missing piece, and the casualty of the growing lack of agreement between Northumberland and Cranmer, was the reform of canon law, required to dovetail with all these other changes. Cranmer was gutted. It was a major omission. Now, you might ask why. Go on, ask me why. No, go on then. I'll tell you. Or a theory, at least. Firstly, we've seen that Cranmer opposed Northumberland's execution of Somerset. Now, you might think this was just a one-off, even if it was a big one. But there are other occasions when Cranmer opposed him. So, for example, Cranmer voted against indicting the Conservative Bishop Tunstall for misprison of treason. Cranmer was becoming a bit of a thorn in Northumberland's side. But that alone wasn't sufficient. You really have to know why Cranmer was so desperate to reform canon or church law. One reason was simply, as I've said, that so much had changed about the church that its law needed to change to be consistent. But another one was that the evangelicals had their own view on the kinds of laws the church should have. They had different social priorities. And the really big one was that reforming canon law would allow the church to recover some independence from civil authority, independence from the state. Now, Northumberland was also a religious evangelical. However, he firmly believed that the church should be subservient to the state. He had no worries at all, no doubts, in any way, about the confiscation of what he saw as just surplus ecclesiastical wealth. As far as he was concerned, it was simply putting right a great wrong. And so he blocked Cranmer. As far as reform was concerned, 
It would be very wrong to give the impression, though, of a church moving calmly forward in a measured way, with nods from a grateful population with each new enlightenment. Hopefully I have made that clear enough. But it's also important to understand that the Edwardian church was a church at war with itself in some ways. I'm going to give you another inappropriate image. Do any of you know American Werewolf in London? You know the film. Do you remember the bit where he transforms into a werewolf? I suppose that's now a process repeated ad nauseum in loads of films these days, but you know, the one about the body being transformed in a violent, painful way. The Edwardian church was still in that process of change. To a degree within the church, the challenge from conservatives was fading fast. In the early 1550s, out of a total of 27 bishops, the conservatives lost seven members. Leaving a church then, that was overwhelmingly led by evangelicals. In a sense, the problems were rather that a significant group thought that Cranmer and Ridley were not going far or fast enough. One of the issues, of course, is that liberty is a two-edged sword. Allow people to debate, and they will indeed debate, and they'll get cross, they'll shout at each other, and the idea of medieval stability and unity is quickly banished. Just you wait till we get to the civil wars, then you'll see that in spades. The debate was constant. In November 1551, for example, in a very genteel example of this, William Cecil invited 14 men to his house in Cannon Row in London to debate the mass. Five spoke against it, two defended it. Important people came to listen to the debate. Despite Northumberland's attempts to row back from Somerset's liberalism over censorship, the regime was actually notoriously unsuccessful in suppressing printing and pamphleteering. It gives an idea just how important these issues were to everybody. They really mattered. People really wanted to know the truth. Some of the troubles and debates that tore at the Edwardian church seem very petty to us. I've mentioned something of the hoo-ha about vestments. A further massive debate was whether communicants should kneel during communion. Did such a thing imply adoration of the bread and wine, or was it a simple matter of piety? The firebrand John Knox the man who would, of course, transform the Scottish church with fire and brimstone, was at this time preaching at Berwick, having ended his sabbatical as a slave in the French galleys sent there by the Scottish monarchy. He was invited to preach in London, and he got involved with all the enthusiasm for which he will become famous. The language used is not in any way fraternal. There are accusations of greed, ignorance, selfishness, and most enthusiastically, of sexual immorality. Hollow-hearted whoremongers, most saucy, shameless sodomites, the manciples of mischief, is one example, which is impressive, delightfully alliterative, if slightly obscure in places out of thought for a really effective insult. This was joined by evangelical fury at what they saw as the misspending of the wealth of the church. They felt betrayed that all this wealth had simply served to enrich secular politicians. Latimer and other preachers railed against greed and covetousness and the fury went all the way up to Cranmer. A visitor to Lambeth clearly spent supper being regaled with the good archbishop's unhappiness since he wrote home afterwards saying, I hear that persons in authority are shamefully guilty of seizing on ecclesiastical property. Cranmer would also have been bending Northumberland's ears behind closed doors which would not have made him any more popular with the great man. In 1549, Cranmer lectured, let both parties lay away this so furious and excessive desire of worldly things. There was a general sense of disappointment of missed opportunity. One evangelical wrote in 1550, 
meat was provided for the commons of England, and ready to have been delivered. But when they were bidden to sit down in quietness, they rose in rebellion and have lost all cheer of that feast. For some of the evangelicals, it was like the feeding of the five thousand, but where the end of the miracle had gone wrong. The long and the short is that by 1553, the Edwardian Reformation had a long way to go. It had many ordinary people to convince. It was divided by faction within its own hierarchy and between ecclesiastical and lay leaders. And yet, the amount that had been done was astounding. The vast majority of doctrine and liturgy had been laid down and clarified, and the Elizabethan church would only tinker with it. From exile during the Marian persecutions, one radical evangelical, exactly the kind of man who would moan that not enough had been achieved, would still write with glee that the greater change was never wrought in so short a space in any country sith the world was. Much of this was due to the cannier and steelier side of Cranmer's character. Twisted, he'd turned, he'd survived. He had walked like a child among the political wolves of Henry's day, more than one saved only by Henry's hand. John Knox would describe Cranmer as the mild man of God. But throughout, Cranmer showed an inflexible set of core beliefs in the royal supremacy. He built a clear picture of the destination he wanted to achieve, built on a thoroughgoing internationalism. And he was prepared to further his aims by any way he needed to, reassuring with one hand, radical reformation with the other, step by relentless step. When John Knox had ranted against the concept of kneeling at the altar, it was not the firebrand who won the argument, it was Cranmer. That evangelicals got as close as they did to their goals by 1553, that the English church under Elizabeth would turn out as it did, is due to Cranmer more than any one person. Now then folks, let me give you all some advance warning of a bonanza. Yes, a bonanza, a feast of fun, a sweet, succulent celebration of England's rich tapestry of history, which will take us up to the Christmas break. The programme to which I refer has nothing to do with Christmas, but it will be the dramatisation of one of the many tragic events in our story, the story of Jane Grey. From the 2nd to the 10th of December, there will be a podcast each and every day. Yes, you heard me, each and every day. And then there'll be an interview the following week with Nicola Tallis, who's an author of The Crown of Blood. There'll be a poll and a prize draw. There'll be a quiz for members. Just so you know how exciting it's going to be. Before I finish, could I also give a specific thank you to folks who continue to donate? You might not want to become members or you might just want to give a donation. And if you do, there's a button on the website that allows you to do this. So thanks to all of you who continue to do that. Thanks to all of you also, while I'm in thanking mode, who write reviews. There have been some lovely ones on the Facebook page. And also some brilliant ones on iTunes, which is great. I do read each and every one. Thank you very much. Oh, and incidentally, thanks to all of you who told me what you thought about the idea of music and effects and all that. I do like feedback, as long as it doesn't include the words big nose. The result seems to be that while some of you liked the idea, the majority did not. This, in a way, is a good thing, since it is very time-consuming. So the idea has been banished, but only to the specialist kicking team to reappear on selected occasions only. That's it. Have a great week, everyone. Next week, we'll turn to Edward and some thoughts he begins to have about the succession and why he begins to have those thoughts.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.